What's up, people? This is Significant Other. Thank you in advance to anyone listening. I appreciate the click. This is the first recording of a series that I'm going to be rolling out over the next few weeks. Podcast seems like a bit of a dirty word at the moment with everything happening, but uh, please bear with me. For a long time, I've worked in dance music, both as an artist and a promoter. And these are some thoughts I've had on various aspects of dance music for a while. And I think some of them might be interesting to others. I assume that anyone who takes the time to listen to this will also be involved in our subculture in some way. Perhaps, if you're like me, or have chosen to listen to this, you will have most likely reorientated your life around the subculture of raving, to some extent. Be it going all the way and throwing yourself into a creative role, trying to make a living off music, or just as someone who participates in music as a listener. I think that in either case, oftentimes people who really fall in love with dance music orientate their worldview around it and use it as a lens through which to see and navigate the world. This is certainly true for me, and recently I've been drawn to interrogate that love. It can't hurt, surely, to dig a little deeper into why it exists, how it functions, how it can be harnessed to enact change. Today, I'm going to chat a bit about the idea of participation and posit that a good way to think about raving is as a transformative practice. Hence the title of this episode, Transformative Spaces, a term which I think is a good way of referring to dance music environments. This episode is going to be a bit more broad in scope than other later ones will be, more attempting to identify different factors which contribute to an overall effect than trying to dissect each one of them individually. In part, this is because, while completely subjective, I personally subscribe to this view of participation being the central component in the unique experience of underground dance music. And therefore, getting a rough outline of why this is the case down as the first episode will be helpful for going into areas in more depth in later ones. So, much of this episode will center around the role participation in music plays within the overall transformative process. Dance music changes people on many levels, levels that occur both on an individual scale as well as a community one, and I'd like to examine that today. I hope you enjoy, and feel free to hit me up if you have any thoughts or ideas that can supplement this discussion. It would be cool to include them in the next recording. I've set up a Patreon account for See You Monday, which is what I'm calling this series. It's a fairly obvious allusion to a Herbert track, and a phrase I've always thought encapsulates both the highs and the lows of being a regular dancer, both the worrisome, living-for-the-weekend vibe that can emerge, but also the community that comes out of repetition, shared behaviors, experiences. Please note, all episodes will always be free and available through other platforms, starting with SoundCloud. If you're hearing this, you've already figured that out. This Patreon thing is totally optional and only online for people who would like to support with a small membership fee to allow me to continue to make these discussions. One thing I've always loved about podcasts is that they are a medium that hinges on accessibility. There will never be a paywall to listen to any of this. I'm just going to chuck in a few extras for people who want to support, such as written transcripts of every episode, mixes that respond to recorded discussions, and a few other bits and bobs, maybe some feet pics. Just kidding. I'm unemployed right now, which has given me more time to work on this. That being said, a few quid would go a long way. Big up yourself again, and thank you for listening. Oh, also, in this discussion, 
I'm going to refer to a few texts that I think fellow ravers will find interesting. The majority of them have helped shape my understanding of the dance, and why the often exhausting and thankless task of flowering raves is so fulfilling, and in many ways helped me to view our subculture in a new light, to view dance music as a ritual of participation, with far more components than just dancer and DJ. In the description for this recording, please find links to all of the texts, and a few others I couldn't squeeze in. On its deepest conceptual level, raving can be thought of as transformative. It's a subculture that sustains itself through communality, where participants are in constant exchange with each other. There is a rewarding and addictive quality to dancing in these environments, one that I think runs deeper than surface-level explanations, like drug use. There's a core of individualism, which somehow morphs and solidifies into community. Something is shared and taken away from the experience. But what the dancer gains is hard to quantify. In general, the word transformative alone can be used to describe something which facilitates a marked change in someone or something. But its etymology is more open-ended than the word itself might seem. When we see something which stems from the root transform, a final product comes to mind, a set transition, something specific, created out of something else. A goes to B. But in truth, the real purpose of the word transformative is to signify cause and effect. Someone or something has been changed. But then the describer must go further, to specify the nuts and bolts of this evolution, to justify their usage of the word. Here, the ambiguity of the term alone works in our favor. To capture or pin down the elusive, spiritual effect which underground dance music has upon the individual is tricky. On some level, this effect is unique to each dancer. On another, something bigger can be traced out, the communal effects which spread deeper, formed out of participation. In this recording, I aim to break down the intricacies which combine to make dance music transformative upon the individual within the context of contemporary rave culture. To do this, it's necessary to approach the phenomenon from several angles, breaking down both the socio-historical factors that gave birth to the subculture, the music produced within it, and the community that arises when individuals come together to form something larger than themselves. It's one thing to observe this transformative effect, another to decipher how it comes about. Perhaps, in order to understand how raving is able to transform the individual, it's helpful to make a distinction between the different levels upon which this occurs. The most obvious is the experiential level of rave culture, the human element of which it consists. The ritual associated with it, in other words, what participation entails, and how the actual act of listening within a unique, transient environment affects the dancer. It's also necessary to take into account the sociological factors, which on some level necessitate the culture itself. Marginalized bodies dancing is a form of resistance, and for many, the rave is a space of freedom, a step outside the structural and social restrictions which are unavoidable in the outside world. I'd like to take a moment to make it clear, I won't try to dig too deeply into problems which face the marginalized in dance music, be it discrimination both within the culture and the outside world, based on anything, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, disability, as someone with a chronic illness and disability status, I think I can perhaps speak to that experience with some authority, 
In other areas, though, I can only really offer an outsider's perspective, that of someone who makes music and throws raves and does their best to support those who face these problems. With these recordings, I would like eventually to grow a platform upon which I can invite guests who have unique insights and can provide more informed perspectives on the areas which I, being who I am, on many levels can't comprehend. I just wanted to make that clear and speak with the caveat that ultimately, everything I say into this mic are just my thoughts. The text which I found really beneficial in my own work is called Musicking by Christopher Small. Published in 98, Small addressed the role which ritual and participation play in the experience of listening to music. The book's title, A Proposed Present Participle of To Music, refers to a term which Small calls for to describe the active component involved in our engagement with music. To music, as Small defined it, quote, is to take part in any capacity in a musical performance, whether by performing, by listening, by rehearsing or practicing, by providing material for the performance, or by dancing, end quote. This term is a helpful way to consider the communal aspect of rave culture. It expands the scope of participation, looking beyond a binary view of DJ and listener being the sole participants, the sole players in the relationship, this broader view of engagement is perhaps a more practical view of how a temporary space such as a rave functions. This idea from Small isn't super new or revolutionary. At the moment, I'm reading a book by Leonard Meyer called Emotion and Meaning in Music, which came out in 1956. In the introduction, he acknowledges a similar view to Small's, which has been present throughout history, showing that composers and performers of all cultures have, in the past, quote, agreed that music has meaning and that this meaning is somehow communicated to both participants and listeners, end quote. His view is slightly different, but it's another which acknowledges the importance of participants within the listening experience. Maya calls this way of thinking a referentialist view. In other words, the meaning within music is not purely contained within the art itself. Rather, it, quote, also communicates meanings which in some way refer to the extra-musical world of concepts, actions, emotional states, and character." End quote. If anybody's interested, the alternative view is an absolutist one, which basically argues that the meaning of the music is contained within the work itself and the artist's process. Seems a bit dumb. In Small's definition, this isn't the case. Participation within music is not limited to the artist. Ravers, promoters, bouncers, all can be seen to participate in the music in some way. All of these people, on a literal, physical level, facilitate the transformative process which occurs. But what does this participation do? What effect does it have on those involved? For Small, participation in listening has the effect of reinforcing values. This is what is at the heart of celebration, and we can see this all the way back to earlier societies. Musicking has always functioned as a means of social and self-definition, and this is another quote. Those taking part in a musical performance are in effect saying to themselves, and to anyone else who may be watching or listening, this is who we are, end quote. In this light, raving is about identity and community, even if that seems a little obvious. A self-sustaining process of self-discovery occurs. I am who I am because this is what I choose to listen to. In doing so, we are who we are because we have all chosen this. 
I am the dancer because I, in the core of my psyche, as an individual, am sustained by this music, given purpose. But slowly, it has become apparent that I'm not alone, because within each body around me, the same ontological belief seems to burn. I'm not sure if you feel the same way. We all have our own spiritual attachment to dance music. But from my own experience, and the feelings at the core of my musical soul, this really speaks to me. A real facet of dance music for me comes in the form of a sort of geospecific unity, a communion. I've had moments at the rave or the club where when I stop to think and put the music on a shelf just for a moment, another component of my love for the subculture, a slightly different one, becomes clear. It seems to me, at times like this, that there is another type of relationship that weaves its way through the fog. Or maybe not even a different type, but one that occurs between dancers in a different way. I love focusing on the DJ when I'm at parties, with a lineup of artists I love. I love to watch what they're doing technically, maybe learn something, or even just have a little window between arms and lights of how someone I admire cranks out their craft. But I think Small's take on the relationship between participants and music can be extended. The reinforcement of values takes place on a creative level, one that is tied into the spiritual level. I fucking love it when you're locked into the music, having a moment of peak connection with the experience, and you make eye contact with someone doing the same. In those moments, have you ever locked eyes with someone who is in that same state of rapture at that specific moment, who has made some physical gesture to acknowledge that you're both kind of riding that same feeling? The lone gun finger and grin across a dark room can represent something so simple, but so beautiful. I often think about going to a Swamp 81 New Year's rave in... Uh, maybe 2014 or 15. I think I was 17. Me and my mate Gabriel took the bus down to London, just the two of us because everyone else bailed. I still remember this goofy guy in a bucket hat. We sort of locked together at this one crazy blend, both of us, I assume, having an internal connection first with the music and then with each other, having both done that thing where you scan the room in moments of bliss to see if anyone else is going as wild as you over that specific moment, be it a blend or a drop or just the track playing, or the section of the track playing, or whatever. I think that's just one type of communal moment to think about. It's obviously much bigger than that. There are values reinforced which are much larger and further reaching, ones with social implications, or the values we associate with our own taste, that we feel are mirrored by a certain sonic palette. But again, that's just one to think about. Maybe bliss can be the thread that ties a lot of these broader values together and provides a door into unpacking our own personal beliefs and values and desires within the context of other people and a shared experience. In specific cases, this ties into the history of resistance in rave culture. I think it's perhaps most significant when the person consumed by this experience is marginalized. For people of color and queer ravers, this process is surely amplified. Not only are they connected to those around them through a shared musical experience, but also on another level, one of a different sort of identity. In the context of a rave, this is particularly significant. The transient nature of its setting creates a space for marginalized bodies, one that doesn't always exist in a physical form in the outside world. Perhaps it is this foundation of temporality within the nature and definition of a rave which makes this possible. The environment created is a fleeting, temporary space, created literally out of community like-minded people coming together. It's hard to corrupt a space which only lives as a tangible being for the duration of the music. 
A writer who echoes this idea is Fiona Buckland in her book, Impossible Dance, Club Culture and Queer Worldmaking. I've included a link to it at the bottom of this recording. I think that for a moment, it's a good idea to take into account the difference between a club and a rave. I promise I'm not gonna shit on either space. They're different things, but provide a collaborative framework that is essential, and both must coexist in order for our culture to survive. But I do think personally, the two are very different things. A nightclub is fixed, immobile, and the experience of music within it inherently mediated. It's a physical space, a business, an entity unto itself which exists as an institution. As such, the listener arrives with a degree of expectation. Most likely they've been there before. Within a permanent structure, one reliant on a business model, a chosen aesthetic, a degree of consistency necessary to draw in the consumer, the dancers here know something of the place before they hear the music. To some extent, capitalism's firm grip on the balls of dance music culture is unavoidable. Again, I'm really not trying to shit on clubs with all of this, just to put it to you that raves and clubs function in different ways. There are certainly factors unique to the nightclub that provide unique benefits to this transformative process as well. A theory outside of music, which I think can be applied to showcase the benefits of the club as a permanent space and its potential for the transformative, is William James's argument about worldly knowledge consisting as a web. This was big in pragmatism, which, although more about political praxis, is quite relevant in talking about dance music. James pushed the view that every individual has a stock or web of, quote, old opinions already, end quote, which directly affect the way we react when some anomaly presents itself. This means that, quote, until at last some new idea comes up with which we can graft upon the ancient stock with a minimum disturbance, end quote, we will remain set in our own web of references. An idea is required that can mediate between our web and the new experience presenting itself, if we substitute this broad view of knowledge for a musical one, the argument can be applied here to this idea about pre-existing knowledge of a musical environment affecting the way we develop within the experience. In this case, the anomaly can be a musical one, a sound or style we aren't familiar with, have never heard before. In James's view, in order to absorb this and incorporate it into our, in this case, let's say, musical spiritual development of identity or personal sonic palette, it's easier when we can ground it in the known. In this view, the consistency and familiarity of the club is a good thing. If foreign sounds and styles are presented to us in an environment we understand and are familiar with, we can add them to our web of musical knowledge much more easily than if they were to be presented in a totally alien setting. An example could be if a DJ drops something that is stylistically atypical to be heard in a certain environment, say, a Berber drum track in a Western club. If a Western clubgoer was to hear this music in its traditional environment and setting, it could perhaps be difficult to see its potential within a dance music set, or where it could fit in with their own personal taste. When we are spoon-fed weird, unfamiliar styles and sounds in an environment which we are comfortable in, an argument can be made that it becomes more accessible and impactful upon the listener in a club setting, expanding our web of knowledge and taste, because we can mediate it with our existing experiences. If you'll allow me to get a bit heady for a second, I want to talk about an essay from Bart. I don't mean to try and over-intellectualize all of this, but a big motivation in recording these thoughts is to help develop my own understanding of something that I hold very dear. 
It sort of seems logical to do a deep dive into music using outside sources. Many of those listening might be like me, and have been so impacted by those early feelings of belonging and of finding a sound which seems to reflect their view on the world and a community that traverses physical location that they've reorientated their life around it. I'd like to chat about that another time. My point is that if you live and breathe dance music, particularly if you're a professional and the work you do serves a larger audience, I think that on some level you have an obligation to try and unearth the love you have. There is also an educative responsibility, which again, often ties into both one's own self-discovery, as well as the praxis they might want to enact within the scene. Energy Flash by Reynolds is an absolute brick to get through, but if you give it a try it can really contextualize a lot of the contemporary discourse on the legacy of dance music, and its debt to people of color and queer artists. Something I read recently, which I'd like to go into on another episode, is a piece by the artist Rush, which is an open letter to resident advisor and the UK music press. But yeah, if your world is shaped around a subculture, probably can't hurt to try and figure out why. Anyway. In Listening, from his 1985 essay collection, The Responsibility of Forms, Critical Essays on Music, Art, and Representation, link in bio, Roland Barthes connects some of Freud's thoughts on psychoanalysis with the experience of listening. If we can separate some of Freud's more interesting ideas from all of that sucking off your dad or whatever, there's definitely some meat in his writing. Freud argued that to enter an experience with expectation, or a predisposition to focus on a single element, makes one liable to overlook or experience entirely fewer aspects of the overall listening experience. From this, Bart concludes that if one's expectations are followed in this selection, if we latch onto the musical or visual element that we go into the experience expecting, there is a danger of never finding, quote, anything but what is already known, end quote. This applies to dance music on a sonic level. If I enter a rave expecting to hear a certain style, genre, or trait within the music played, on some level I'll be searching for this, whilst on some level subconsciously ignoring the sounds that fall outside of it. It's surely not unreasonable to extend this, or to argue that if I enter a club, fixed as it is in my mind both visually and sonically, something might be lost. Expectation here becomes the downfall of exploration. As we've established, the transformative elements cannot be viewed in isolation. The music alone doesn't create this state. Everything from setting to the crowd and energy specific to it contributes to this transformative process. If one of those things, as it is often liable to be within a club, always remains the same, some aspect of this subversion of expectations, which really is at the heart of the transformative process, is surely lost. A rave, on the other hand, is a different creature. On a conceptual level, it advances the transformative by reflecting it. By its very nature, it is in line with the experience it manifests, fleeting, unfixed. Often illegal, with parties switching up spaces each time, the listener typically goes into the experience knowing little of what they will see and hear. I mean, alright, they'll probably have a lineup, but location, where they hear it, all of that's up for grabs. Whilst the list of factors that facilitate the transformative process of raving are extensive, the music which defines the subculture is surely the largest. The music played at raves is an impossible thing to try and summarize. There are endless genres, tempos which range from the sub-80 through to 170. Even blanket terms such as techno or house, which encompass an enormous spread of styles and subdivisions, are only labels, 
tools to identify certain styles within something larger. Genres, after all, first and foremost are simple attempts to sell music, to make it identifiable to the consumer, necessarily, mind you. A single 12-inch will typically contain four tracks, four individual creations by a human being who is inherently complicated, evolving. To slap a label on this is pointless. Even a single record in a single week of a single year, preceded by a legacy of decades of dance music to inform it, every composition will be beyond quantification, truly. It's necessary to try, of course. This isn't some cruel marketing ploy developed by capitalism. To discuss music even with friends, broader terms are required, lest we spend hours trying to describe a single track's intricacies. In order to understand how the music itself contributes to the experience of raving and of clubbing, it is necessary to focus on the shared factors across all dance music genres, I think, rather than attempt to go down the rabbit hole of weighing up the different styles individually. After all, a good DJ, while perhaps creating a trademark sound by sticking to a certain palette or aesthetic neck of the woods, if you will, rarely occupies a single, specific genre throughout a set. Take, for example, my friend DJ Pleed, an artist defined by his love of percussion and the infusion of Lebanese pop influence into his sets and productions alike. This is an artist who has a trademark sound, albeit quite a unique one, but this hardly means he plays only music from within this area. Indeed, DJs who stick religiously to a single genre tend to operate in a sphere above the rave circuit. A skeptic would argue that in a lot of cases this could be seen as a career move, typical of the detached techno superstar. A more gentle understanding would be that the artist is a purist, or just in love with a single style they have mastered. In many cases, it's often an identifier of the old school crowd, artists present in the formative days of sub-scenes and subcultures within the landscape of dance music. If we look at Goldie for drum and bass, or Jeff Mills as perhaps the most obvious within techno, their talent and dedication is enormously apparent, but these giants of genre are hardly spinning at underground raves in 2020. No one is right now, but you know what I'm saying. This might be a huge generalization. In fact, it definitely is. One of the intrinsic properties of raving is that it is very hard to quantify or break down, or in most cases observe. A rave exists as a transient thing, fleeting, untied to a physical place or structure or sound. Generally, the artifacts laid behind can't tell us much about it. Today, people obsessively replay grainy footage of 90s raves. Wide-eyed teens on Castle Morton Common, archived in shaky film footage. But we can't learn much from this. Paradoxically, despite today's advanced technology, every raver dancing with a smartphone in their pocket, capable of taking high-quality videos and images, even less is captured. Footage of dark rooms and strobes or squatting friends in the smoking area at sunrise is either lost in the algorithm or, should it survive, a hazy, blown-out memento that doesn't really give us much. Perhaps it is the bookend artifacts which endure to serve some purpose. We may not be able to document the rave itself, but the humanity which blankets it, is informed by it, can be charted. Gleeful rides home on city bikes during the morning glow of South London or Central Brooklyn, tender jaws attempting a stab at a full English. The documentation of the people which come together to form the rave is maybe something we can learn from the most. A visual artifact of the community spirit which is ethereal and impossible to capture. Pinning down the transformative, or rather, trying to identify its sociological and musicological roots, will always be difficult. For many, it will also be somewhat redundant, 
Raving is an escape from the order and mundanity of regular life, and something plenty of dancers are wary of demystifying. In this episode, I've tried to elaborate and identify some of the key factors which, I think, are present within the experience of club culture. But it's always necessary to keep in mind that this is all subjective. The beauty of raving comes from the duality of individualism and community, the mysterious overlap of the two. A subculture which is meaningful for individuals in different ways, but somehow evolves to bring such individuals together under something larger. In all of this, perhaps the most objective argument is the need to refute the view that this is purely an exchange between the DJ and the listener. This binary view of what constitutes and creates a space for personal growth, transformation, is redundant. For me, Small's definition of musicking encompasses the correct way to view raving in our time. Participation is the bedrock of the rave, and it can emerge in many forms. Participation reinforces values, and even if these values are subjective, shifting, and impossible to quantify with words, we can know that they are there. That's all from me today. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this week's recording. The next episode will drop next Monday, and that will be the pattern for the rest of this series, which should go on for a few weeks. If you have any thoughts or ideas that would be interesting either to me or for me to put into some of these, please feel free to shoot me an email. It is significantother at gmail.com. Importantly, that's other spelled U-T-H-A evidently there is another significant other at gmail.com masquerading out there big up yourself and thanks for listening and always remember big beats are the best get high all the time please tune in next Monday if you enjoyed this one I think the next one's going to be really cool